0: A Time Magazine article came out uh, in October of 2006 that points to research that shows that 61% of adults who were polled in this particular research project in their 20s used to attend a church but now have left the church. In another study, George Barna in his book, Real Teens, writes that only one-third, now that is 33% of churched youth say that church will be an important part of their life when they leave home. Now that's optimistic because in another study, Ron Lucci, in his book, Battle Cry for a Generation, estimates that 88% of kids. Raised in Christian homes. Don't continue in the faith. After high school graduation. 88%. Drew Dyke. In a study that came out in a book called. Generation X Christian. Identifies what he calls the leavers. L-E-A-V-E-R-S. Young people. Who when they leave home. Leave evangelical churches. And he has a a description of the various types of leavers. First of all, you have the postmoderns. The postmodern levers are those who now believe the evangelical message is too narrow. Uh, it's too intolerant. And so they've they've left the church as a result. Then you've got the recoilers. The recoilers uh, are leavers who had a bad experience in their church growing up. Oftentimes they would see the old people kind of grumbling and, 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 and turned in on themselves and not loving the younger generations, and it just turned them off. So you have the recoilers who just have left the church because of the bad taste in their mouth coming from the older generation. You have the modernists. The modernists have bought into an anti-supernatural worldview. Now, what does that mean? That means all the miracles of the Bible, you just kind of pull them out. Uh, Jesus wasn't raised from the grave. God doesn't do things like that. And so you have those who hold to that. And now, you also have the neo-pagans. The neo-pagans are leavers who play around with all kinds of spirituality. Uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, New Age spirituality. Uh, That way you can have your cake and eat it too. You can be spiritual, but it doesn't affect your morality. Uh, You don't have any kind of authority over you. In that kind of worldview, then there's the spiritual rebels. The spiritual rebels hate authority, they are after personal autonomy, and so they have left the church because of the authority uh, that they've had to endure. And then there's the drifters. The drifters are those who just kind of wander slowly, it's, it's a drift, and they wander slowly away from the church. Oftentimes, because they never really saw their parents as committed to the local church. And so they they just kind of emulate their their parents. If if church isn't that important, then eventually they just kind of drift away. Sociologist Christian Smith, in a very extensive study, uh, describes the belief system of 20-somethings in our culture as what he calls... Moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism. And we can summarize moral therapeutic deism in this way. First of all, uh, these 20-somethings believe in God. Okay? Uh, They believe in God, and they believe that God wants us to behave. But this behavior is not informed by scriptural norms. It's informed more by the cultural norms. And so what becomes politically correct in the culture informs the way we behave, okay? Secondly, they believe, that is, these moral therapeutic deists, they believe that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about ourselves, all right? That's exactly what's being taught by by Dr. Phil and Oprah and others of their ilk. Thirdly, God exists, but He's not necessarily or particularly involved in your life, nor does He need to be, unless you have an emergency, unless He's needed to resolve a problem. Now, if your prayer life is essentially only present when you're going through a difficulty, uh, you may be more like this perspective than you realize that's that's deism by the way god just kind of you know winds the watch and he just lets the world run but he's not necessarily particularly involved in our lives he's not a, we're not accountable to him and then finally good people go to heaven when they die uh, that's what this position holds good people go to heaven when they die in a therapeutic worldview. There is no objective sin to be forgiven of, all right? Where we are actually sinners and we are in need of the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ because there's no objective sin. What they do have is subjective burdens of guilt, subjective burdens of guilt that come from unrealized expectations, whether it's expectations they have of themselves are expectations that others have of them. Of course, if Christian Smith is right, that moral therapeutic deism is the religion of the 20-somethings, no wonder they leave. What is there to keep them? If that's what's being taught in our churches, if that's what's being taught in our pulpits, in fact, we're not keeping them. Uh, The Nehemiah Institute out of Lexington uh, they did a study of more than 15,000 students in Christian schools to test their worldview, okay? Now, these are professing Christians raised in, in, for the most part, Christian homes. It's called peers testing, which is an acronym. The P uh, stands for politics. What do these uh, professing Christian students believe? What is their worldview concerning politics? The first E is education. Uh, the second E uh, has to do with economics. The R has to do with their religion, their religious beliefs. And then the S uh, represents uh, social, um, you know, social norms, social beliefs, um, having to do with the, the things that we see in our culture with regard to social uh, you know, trends. And here's what they found. They found... With 15,000 students that were tested, only 6% of youth from Christian homes have a biblical worldview. 6%. 6 out of 100. Now, what is a biblical worldview? Well, just broadly speaking, it's a worldview that understands the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of the fall and sin, and the doctrine of redemption that is communicated through a person named Jesus Christ by His substitutionary work on the cross and His resurrection from the grave for our pardon. That's a Christian worldview. Only 6% of Christians are are professing Christian young people have a biblical worldview. 63% in this study did not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And 58% believed that all faiths Teach equally valid truths. 51% believe that Jesus was not raised from the grave. These are kids who were raised in churches. Raised by professing Christian parents. As a side, I praise God for the older generation here. Who are investing in our younger generation. We see it with Awana I see it with the interactions on Wednesday night. I praise God for the older generation who is investing in our younger generation here. It's not like that everywhere. In fact, um, in every dying church, and there are thousands, do you realize there are thousands of dying churches in the Southern Baptist Convention? What I mean by that is when your generation, the older generation dies, they're turning the lights off. They are locking the doors because there is no generation to follow. In every dying church, you can see the idols of the older generation coming out. The idol of traditionalism. Now, I want to say here, we embrace tradition. When the tradition is grounded in the word of God. But when traditionalism is reigning, what you have are idols, preferences that have become ultimate. And when preferences become ultimate, when traditionalism reigns, it kills a church. And that's why you have a lot of churches with older generations having holy huddles, but there's no young people. There's no people in the nursery. It's because traditionalism is reigning. Meanwhile, a a culture is going to hell. And I would even submit that perhaps some of these traditionalists may be going with them as their evidence, their lack of evidence of love. Love being the fruit of the Spirit. So if you're loveless, maybe you're devoid of the Spirit. But I want to praise you because you are investing in our younger generation and it's going to have... It's going to bring great fruit. Now, back on task. What's the solution to this flight from Jesus and His church that I've just spoken of in these polls? What is the solution? It's the same solution the disciples needed. You understand me? Within hours of this passage, the disciples are going to flee Jesus. They're going to turn their back on Jesus. This is Jesus' farewell discourse. In fact, in John's account, same time, same conversation. Luke just doesn't record it. He says in John 16, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me Alone. And so, what is the solution to this this flight of young people, okay, into moral therapeutic deism where they don't need Jesus, they don't need His church? It's the same solution the disciples needed. The only thing, the only thing that can melt a stony heart is the gospel, it's the only solution. And the problem in a lot of these churches is that the gospel is not being preached. Moralism is being preached. Be better sermons. Just kind of behavior modification. Put perfume on a pig. But that doesn't change the heart. The only thing that can change the heart is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that this morning in our text. What's going to bring these disciples back once they flee? And they're going to flee. There's two things, essentially, but they're related. The first thing we saw last time, Jesus' advocacy of them. Jesus' advocacy of us as our intercessor. He says, Peter, you're going to turn your back on me. You're going to reject me, but I am praying for you so that when you return... And God always answers the prayers of Jesus. We saw that in John 11, didn't we? When you return, strengthen my brothers. And so the intercessory ministry of Jesus is one of the central means by which we will persevere in the faith. The second we see today. Jesus' advocacy as our suffering servant. Jesus' advocacy as our suffering servant. Now at this point in the text something remarkable is being communicated to, to G, by Jesus. He knows they're about to forsake him. He knows they're about to turn on him and yet he's giving them a commission. And that commission is their mission. And we see it in verses 35 and 36. He said to them, "When I send you out with no money bag or knapsackers or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. Now, what is he referring to there? Well, in chapter 9, when he first sent the disciples out, he sent the 12 out, he told them, go out with nothing. And he wanted to teach them not to trust in their resources, not to trust in their strengths, their talents. He was teaching them to trust in God. And then we see in chapter 10... Verse 4, he sends the 72 out. He appointed the 72. He sent them out, and he told them not to take any of these things as well. Do you know that God always has us in sanctification school? He's always teaching us. We never graduate. We're never sanctification graduates in this life. And so God, one of the evidences of sonship in our lives, he always has us in school. So in earlier grade, he was teaching them about his provision for them. He said, so go out without these things. But there's a new situation that, that is arising. And you can see it in verse 36. But now, but now, let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack. What is the new situation? It's the cross. It's the cross. All hell is about to break loose on Jesus. And as a result, those who follow him will experience the very same thing. So now he is calling these believers to prepare, to make provision, to face ministry in the context of hostility and persecution. They're going to have to provide for themselves. You're not going to find a welcoming world. That's what he's saying here. But what about the sword here? I mean, this is interesting. He says, and those um, who have no sword, sell it, sell your cloak, and buy one. Is he saying that ministry is going to be carried out with arms? That's not what he's saying at all. We have to understand metaphor, to understand the Bible. You have to understand metaphor to understand anyone. Everybody speaks in some metaphor. For instance, just a little later in the text, a couple of passages later, we'll see this in a few weeks, um, when they come to arrest Jesus, Peter, who takes him literally, pulls out a sword, and there's a servant of the high priest, his name's Caiaphas, or, or uh, Malchus, he takes the sword and he cuts Malchus's ear off. And I resonate with Peter. I've wanted to do that before. Uh, and what does Peter? What does Jesus do? He utterly rebukes him. Peter's misunderstood him. And then you see in the book of Acts, all hell breaks loose on the church. Acts chapter 4, persecution. Acts chapter 8, persecution. Acts chapter 9, persecution. Acts chapter 12, persecution. And not one time do you see the disciples and the church engaging in ministry with the sword. They receive the persecution. And they are only armed with prayer and the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Okay? And so he's speaking metaphorically here. In other words... It would be something akin to this: pack your lunch. If you tell someone to pack their lunch, what you're telling them is, um, I used to tell um, you know the guy I was playing against in football, you better pack your lunch today. What I'm telling them, it's going to be a long day. It's going to be a long day. He is preparing them. This is what you're going to experience. Metaphorically, bring your sword because it's going to get really difficult. It's going to be very painful. Contemporary example of this is um, this back to the Jerusalem missionary movement that's going on in China. I read this morning, in fact, that by the year 2025, there will be more Christians in China than in America. All right? So there's a great move of God in China. But it's the back to the Jerusalem missionary movement. And what they do is they take normal people like you and I, not super saints, not superheroes, People like you and I. And they are training them to, to uh, engage various people groups within China, how to evangelize them, how to suffer for Jesus, and even how to escape when they're arrested. And one leader uh, in this movement says this, we know that sometimes the Lord sends us to prison to witness for Him. Does that fit your worldview of Christianity? But we also believe that the devil sometimes wants us to be imprisoned to stop the ministry God called us to do. Let me just say for a side here, one of the reasons Southern Baptists get so caught up in the color of the carpet, all right, is because they're not on mission. Where you're on the front lines and bullets are zinging past your ear, you don't worry about the color of the carpet, all right? They, they, you don't worry about the style of music. You, you're just in survival mode, all right? That's where they are in China. That's why God is... That's why there's more Christians coming out of China right now than America. And here's what he says. He says, We teach the missionaries special skills such as how to free themselves from handcuffs within 30 seconds, and how to jump from second-story windows without injuring themselves. Now, if we had that as a seminary class, so I'm not sure how many would take the class, all right? We're going to teach you how to jump out of a second-story window with your hands handcuffed behind your back. But what they're teaching them is prepare. Prepare. Prepare, uh, resource, prepare, because all hell is going to break loose when you are faithful with the gospel. And so this is a metaphor Jesus is using here uh, to speak of the persecution. He's preparing them for readiness, not revenge. All right? In fact, in this same conversation, John chapter 15, again, Luke does not record it, but it's the same conversation. It's the farewell discourse. He says in chapter 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. All right, Don't be surprised by that. In fact, if the world doesn't hate you, maybe you're not as vocal with your faith as you should be. And then he says in verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And in verse 37 of our text, we see why. The world at this point has made its decision about Jesus. They do not like Jesus. And uh, those who follow Jesus had better be prepared to be treated likewise. But in this, the cross is going to be their motivation to be willing to be treated likewise. That brings us to the second part of the text. The motivation, we've seen the mission. Now note the motivation, verse 37. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. Isn't that scandalous and remarkable? What scripture? Old Testament scripture. It must be fulfilled in me. What the prophets were speaking about was me. That is provocative. The Old Testament is About Redeemer sending. The Old Testament is preparing us for Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He is claiming that even here. And here's what he quotes. He was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Now keep in mind the disciples are going to flee later on that night. These words don't captivate them. These are just dead words on a page, just like for some of you. You read the Bible right now, you hear it preached, and you're just kind of, okay, when's lunch? It's just not, it's not melting you. It's not doing anything for you. That's where the disciples are right now. It's a dangerous place to be because they're just a few minutes from just fleeing the whole um, scene because they don't want to be identified with Jesus. It would be too costly. What's going to change these men? What's going to change them from self-centered, selfish cowards to those who are willing to give their lives for the gospel? What's going to change them? Well, the text tells us Christ's atonement. He quotes it right here in the passage, verse 37. He says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. As I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking about a passage of Zechariah that's going to be fulfilled in the cross. Uh, Zechariah chapter 12, it's speaking about the day of the Lord. If I can turn there, for some reason I can't. Uh, in Zechariah 12, he's talking about the day they will pierce the Lord. And here's what it says. I will pour out on, my house, on, on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Now, why will they begin to plead for mercy? They go from just kind of listless and bored in their religion, like many people sitting in Southern Baptist pews today. And they go from that to pleading for mercy. What, what will be the, the thing that provokes this? Well, he says, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And weep bitterly over him as one weeps. And John tells us in John 19 that this was fulfilled at the cross the next day. And it's remarkable what comes out of that. In Luke chapter 19, notice again another scripture, verse 37. They will look on him whom they have pierced. So the question I'm, I'm posing here is what's going to change these cowards into those who are willing to lay down their lives? There's only one thing that can do that. It's the cross. It's the gospel. Nothing else. I can beat you over the head about being more committed. That will not melt your heart. In fact, you, that's, it's kind of predictable, isn't it? You've heard preaching like that your entire life. That does not change a heart. The only thing that will change your heart is the gospel. And they behold him. Notice Verse 37. After these things, after what things? After they look upon him whom they have pierced. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but notice, but secretly. He was a secret Christian, like some of us. You're a Christian, but nobody in your workplace knows. Because you don't want them to raise their eyebrow at you. It says, for fear of the Jews, ask Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. He's going public. He was a secret Christian and now he's going public. Why? Because he beheld the pierced, crucified Messiah. They now He now sees him for who he is. And Pilate gave him permission. And so, he came and took away his body. This is a public act. Notice Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. What does that mean? He didn't want anybody to see him. He was interested in Jesus, but he didn't want anybody to see it. He came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. That must have been 10 of fools. I mean, this is a public event. The man who came to Jesus at night is now going public. He's my Messiah. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices... As is the burial, burial custom of the Jews. It was the cross. And so here, here's how it works. Objectively, the cross makes atonement for our sins. Now what is atonement? It's a, it's a fancy term that literally meant, when they coined it, at two the one meat. At two the one meat. The two being God and sinful man. And with atonement... They meet, reconciled. And so we can see in Leviticus 16, for instance, the day of atonement, there's this, this goat that receives propitiation or propitiates the wrath of God. So propitiation of the wrath of God is one aspect of atonement. The second aspect of atonement is a expiation, where our guilt, our sins are removed to be remembered no more. He, the, the priest takes the, his hands and he symbolically transfers the sins of the people onto this goat. And then they cast the goat into the wilderness, the scapegoat. All right? That's, that's the expiation of a guilt. So you have propitiation, this wrath, this, this goat dying in our place. And then you have expiation, the goat banished into the wilderness, never to be remembered anymore. Propitiation, expiation, this is atonement. That's the objective aspect of the cross. But there's also a subjective aspect. When we see, behold, the mercy of our God. The love of our God. In crucifying His Son as our substitute. It changes our hearts. It melts our hearts. And so you you will meet, and I speak about this. Because I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. When you see... Members who are critical and always negative, you may as well just put a, a sign on the top of their head saying, I haven't been melted, I haven't been changed by the gospel because the gospel changes you. And it's what's going to change these disciples. Now, this is a reference, as Scott read and uh, led us in to read this morning, to Isaiah 53, verse 12. Isaiah 53 may be the most important chapter in the Old Testament. It's hard to say. But here's here's why I say this. Isaiah 40 to 55 has four crucial songs. They're called the servant songs. Isaiah 42, 1 to 4 is a servant song. If you're taking notes, Isaiah 42, 1 to 4. Isaiah 49, 1 to 6 is a servant song. So that's the second servant song. The third servant song is Isaiah 50, 4 to verse 9. That's the third servant song. This is a part of what we call the fourth servant song. Begins in chapter 52, verse 12. Takes us all the way through chapter 53. What are the servant songs? The servant songs speak about a suffering servant who's going to bear the sins of God's people to bring about a new exodus from exile, okay? And so Isaiah 53 is the fourth of the four servant songs. And here's what's interesting about Isaiah 53. Every verse of Isaiah 53 is picked up by the New Testament writers as fulfilled in Jesus. You think it's an important chapter? The only one that is not spoken of in Isaiah 53 is verse 2 that speaks of his appearance. This verse is the last verse of the final servant song. It becomes a very important verse. It's the one verse that Jesus explicitly says is fulfilled in him. Okay? The one verse from the servant songs that are explicitly fulfilled. In Jesus. And the last four lines of this servant song. As we have numbered up on the the screen there. Are very important. Notice how the fourth and final servant song ends. Now again Jesus is quoting that. Saying this is fulfilled in me. The first line of this last servant song. He says he, he poured out his soul to death. He poured out his soul to death um, that speaks to not just some kind of suffering it's actual death what are the wages of sin death this suffering servant is a substitute he is receiving what we deserve but he comes as a substitute so he first thing he does he pours out his soul to death notice. And he was numbered with the transgressors. That's the verse he quotes. That's the part of the verse he quotes. He was numbered with the transgressors. What does that mean? That means, yes, I think symbolically it's portrayed as he hangs between the two outlaws. But I think there's more to it. He is taking the the sins. He is taking the transgressions of these outlaws, these transgressors. This is... 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. So those first two lines in this last suffering song, um, they, that speaks to what he does from an objective perspective. But it's the final two longs or lines that explain this theologically. Notice, he bore the sin of many. Isn't that Interesting. He bore the sin of many. In other words, the sins that we have and carry, our sin, singular, our disposition, our nature, He was punished for that. He bore that. It was imputed to Him. It was credited to Him, okay? He bore the sins of many and He makes, notice, intercession for the transgressors. What does that remind you of? That reminds you of what he tells Peter. I am praying for you. And so what you have here in this suffering servant song is the ground of our hope. Atonement and intercession. Atonement and intercession. That's what it means that Jesus is our advocate. He ever lives to make intercession for us, he's able to save to the uttermost those who he is making intercession for But he also makes atonement for them. That's what he's quoting here in this passage. This is the basis of our hope. And it was the basis of the disciples hope. Do You remember the context? Peter. Is going to deny him within hours. Three times. He's going to outright deny. Jesus. And the other disciples are going to flee as well. One's already been possessed and betrayed him altogether. So when Jesus the suffering servant dies on the cross, he's going to bear the guilt for Peter's sin. You got that? That's why that's why it's so important there. He bore the sins of many. He bore the sins of Peter. And what kind of sinner was Peter? He was among other things he was a denier. So when Jesus goes to the cross, he's going to be punished as a denier. A denier of the living God. Jesus is going to be punished as a denier. But it wasn't just Peter's sins that Jesus was going to die for. It was for all the sins of every single person who would ever believe in him. For every single person who would repent of their sins and believe in his finished work, he will take your sins. Idolaters. He died for idolaters. Repentant idolaters. He died for repentant adulterers. He died for repentant thieves. He he died for repentant homosexuals. He died for repentant fill-in-the-blank. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. There is no sin beyond atoning. And that's what he is teaching them here. Because he knows what's going to change their heart. And this text in Isaiah is cited for another reason, to make another point. He says... Because I'm going to be treated this way, if you identify with me in a faithful manner, you're going to be treated in this way, likewise. But again, so he's saying, be ready, be ready. And the disciples misinterpret what he means by being ready. So you see, at the end of that passage, they completely misinterpret him, and so they said, to, so they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. I mean, you have you ever taught people that way? You're, you're trying to teach them the Bible and then they just completely miss the point. And, and they they it's just they're they're focused on something secondary to what you're teaching. It's so frustrating. Here's the two swords. He's been talking about atonement. And he said to them, It is enough. Uh, that's not a good translation. Literally, uh, enough of that. You've completely missed the point. That's why how the Holman Christian Standard In fact, translates it. With this rebuke, Jesus is permanently... He is permanently uh, opposing any attempt... Okay? To use the weapons of this world in engaging the world with the gospel. As Paul will write in 2 Corinthians chapter 10... For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not of the flesh... And so he is rebuking that. He is not in any way um, substantiating that or endorsing that as it has certainly been interpreted in church history at times. And if this was the first reading, if this is the first time we're reading this, you have to be asking the question, what hope is there for these guys? I mean, he's talking about atonement, and just in a few hours they're going to turn on him. And if we're honest we have to ask the question about ourselves what is hope for us because we are so fickle we come we come dressed ready for worship and then we leave here and there is nothing oftentimes spiritual about us there's no love just complaints gossip and all kinds of things that come out of our hearts where is the hope and the hope again is found in this verse 37 numbered with the transgressors in just the next day, he would be, this would be symbolically fulfilled as he hung between the two outlaws. And here's the reality. Those outlaws represent the disciples. They're outlaws. They're going to turn their back on the Son of God in the most important hour of his life. And here's the reality. We too are the outlaws. We are the outlaws. And on the cross, he fully identified With us. He fully represented us. He was treated. As an outlaw. He was treated. As a transgressor. Remember the verse last week. He was delivered up. For our transgressions. He became the transgressor. In that sense. Do you think the disciples got it? Later on. Peter after he turns his back on Jesus and is broken, he's going to write 1 Peter. And scholars tell us that Peter spends more time discussing Isaiah 53 than any other New Testament writer. At the moment, it meant nothing to him. He wasn't broken yet. He wasn't broken. Later, he will write, He bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's Isaiah 53. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. That's Peter. What got a hold of this coward? The gospel. As he beheld the crucified Messiah, he began to plead for mercy. The gospel changed Peter's heart. And that's what's going to change all of these disciples. And that's why Jesus, when He gives them this command, knowing they're going to flee, He also knows they're going to come back. Why? Because He's interceding for them and because He's going to make atonement for them. Christ, the great advocate. And it's in understanding those two realities that makes us, transforms us from self-centered, selfish, prideful, Grumbling, complaining, gossiping, turned in ourselves, sinners, into those who give our life away for the gospel, for the kingdom, for sinners. I love this quote as we close. John Newton, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we've seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Isn't that beautiful? It was our duty, but we didn't carry out our duty. Because our pleasure was divorced from that duty. But once we behold the Christ, our pleasure and our duty come together and marry. And that's what's going to happen for the disciples. That's what's going to change these guys from cowards to those who lay down their lives for Jesus.